From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house, our very own Vice President of Theology, ready to answer your questions. All we need for you to do is get on the phone and pose them. That phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 1- 205-271-2985. And uh, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host as he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Do you have a microphone? I I do. There you go. Okay. It was there. Oh, okay. All right. Didn't sound like it was there. If you say it was there, it was there. It was there. <coughs> um, we've got an email here from Scott. And he says, in his earthly lifetime, when did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? Um, in his humanity, as soon as his human brain could process that, you could say psychologically. But since he is God and not man, in other words, the person is God, there was never a time when he did not, during his life, from the moment of his human uh, consciousness and awareness of, of his material existence, not know that he was God. So it is a difficult question because we have trouble fathoming the depth of the link of the hypostatic union between uh, the second person of the Trinity and the nature of Christ. But there's only one person in that God-man, and that person is the second person of the Trinity. And so humanly, uh, he, could, he could not be self-aware once self-awareness was something that he could humanly have with the appropriate uh, parts of human nature for that without knowing who he was. Uh, so that's certainly a difficulty for many, many people. Some have tried to uh, say, well, he's a human person. Well, no, he is. O- there's only one person in Christ. He's a divine person, so that doesn't work. Or to come up with other theories over the, over the centuries, especially in the early centuries, regarding different manners in which Christ was God that did not respect the, the, that he was God who became man. In the word, beginning was the word, and the word became flesh not flesh receive the word or 
flesh came to know that it possessed the word, but the word became flesh. So when at the human level, he had that which was self-aware and conscious of who he was, that who was the second person of the Trinity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. I'm telling you, I warn you every week. In the back half of the show, the lines will be jam-packed, and you're going to wish you would have called now. So pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. David has a very insightful question. He says, if Catholics do not believe in sola scriptura, then how do they avoid the conclusion that the church is self-authenticating? Because it's authenticated by the fact that it has a received tradition. That's what uh, trottere uh, means to, uh, to, to hand on or to uh, pass, on, pass along. And so uh, sola scriptura would suggest that you have the sufficiency of Christ's teaching in the scriptures alone. And if you have that alone, then you have everything that you need. That would mean that you don't need an interpreter. You don't need an authority. Um, say, speaking of self-authenticating. That would be very <laughs> self-authenticating. The church has authority because we know from the earliest days of the church that when somebody was in dispute about the doctrine of Christ, uh, the various fathers, in particular St. Irenaeus of Lyon, said that when you wish to know where is the faith of Christ, in other words, what Christ taught the apostles and which the apostles taught to other, then you go to those seas in which, an, established by an apostle and whose bishops in Irenaeus' day in the second century uh, are the bishops of those seas. And so they are historically, you would say, they're Catholic sees and they're Orthodox sees with a with a little O certainly. Uh, also in into the second millennium, Orthodox with the big O as well in the in the eastern part of the church. And so it, that's the place where you find the apostolic tradition. And where you find the apostolic tradition, what do you find? You find Christ's teaching and you find Scripture, because that teaching tradition existed before Scripture existed as a recognized recognized authority. Uh, that developed over time. The, uh, as St. Justin, uh, uh, Justin tells us in the middle of the second century, already the memoirs of the apostles, what we call gospels, were being used in the liturgy. They were read from, from in the liturgy. And uh, so those existed. The letters of Paul were existed in the places to which they were written or where they were transcribed and read in other places. And so diffused around the Mediterranean, you see that the, the New Testament is in, in seed, is, is developing as things are accumulated to that and recognized as having authority. And those debates go on into the second century and into the third century and are finally settled by the authority which that those traditions uh, regarding what's in Scripture and so on point to, and that is the apostolic authority that resides in the Church. So the Church is not self-authenticating. It's authenticated by Christ himself, who established apostolic authority and which then passed on that apostolic authority and which is received today uh, still to this date in uh, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and in the, the bishops that part 
participate uh, in the authority of the church with him spread throughout the world. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-3986. Danielle wants to know if the Israelites really crossed the Red Sea. (laughs) Well, um, I mean, historians have looked for that place uh, where that took place. It's recorded in sacred scripture. Uh, It was a tradition of the Israelites. I think we either accept that tradition even with you know, maybe reservations of, of our own knowledge of, well, where did this take place? So, for instance, various places have been proposed for that, just as regarding where Mount Sinai is. Uh, there's the one in the Sinai Peninsula, which actually the early, early Desert Fathers uh, recognized, but there's uh, at least some other places which have been proposed as being Mount uh, Horab. And so those debates continue, but the point, is, the point is not a geographical point. The point is a theological point, that here is an event that happened in some way that fits the description uh, of the Scripture in some place that we may not know where it is today, but which has the significance with the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition ascribes to it of redemption. For the Jews, it was a physical redemption from Egypt. For Christians, it's a sign of baptism and salvation through water. And this is what the church teaches. Baptism is the foundation of the Christian life. And so um, we, we take that on the authority of that, even though archaeologically and in other senses there may be historical questions regarding you know, the when, the where, even the when is not clear, 1280s B.C. or maybe at another time, but those points that are debated, but there's not been any, certainly any uh, archaeological or historical refutation of the tradition of the Jews which the church has received. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Stephanie driving through the great state of Kentucky. We'll talk to John in St. Louis, and hopefully we've got time for your phone calls as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know what? If you need a little pick-me-up on a Friday or just a little inspiration at any time during the week, visit EWTN's site dedicated to our own Mother Angelica where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 
288-3986. As advertised, first up today is Stephanie, a first-time listener driving through the Commonwealth of Kentucky, listening on Savior Radio. Stephanie, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Hey, Stephanie. Yeah, I have a question from Malachi. Um, just, uh, I'll tell you what I have, my thoughts, and then I would love to hear you guys' take, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people take that, take that scripture, God hates divorce, in isolation and pull it out and use it a lot, saying God hates divorce. and But God said in Jeremiah several times and several times through the Old Testament that he issued his own people a writ of divorce because they were dealing, they dealt treacherously with him, mm-hmm. were unfaithful. And so in that Malachi scripture, the whole context to me says, hey, buddy, and it could be to a woman too, you know, someone that was dealing treacherously with their wife, he's warning them not to do that, or that's where you're headed. And I hate it, but that's where you're headed, buddy. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered your take on it. Yeah. Well, I think the literal meaning refers to God's relationship with Israel. Uh, You could probably get personal applications out of that. Uh, I think the claim that God hates divorce is amply uh, proven by the fact that, as Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew, and that is that God tolerated divorce for a time, but it was not his intention, as clearly the book of Genesis shows. So in God, in willing us the greatest good, doesn't will uh, partial goods to us. Uh, and so divorce is in some way a breakdown in, in the human relationship that God wills. So, and hate there means that something that is hated, if you follow the philosophical logic, is something which proves is an obstacle to the good which one seeks, and therefore you hate it. You wish to have it removed. That's what that means. We think of hate in a very emotional sense, but philosophically, theologically, it's the the thing you want to have removed. So, hating sin. I w- to hate sin means that, above all else, I want sin removed from my life because it's an obstacle to my greatest good, which is God. This is the point of view of the prophet. Now, that applies in an accommodated sense, I think, to, uh, to in- individual, to, to marriage, uh, which God is using as an analogy of the divine relationship that he has with Israel. He uses adultery in some places to describe their going after other gods and so on, uh, that they have other, you know, uh, other, other wives on the side, as it were. Um, and all of that, of course, is to, sh- to show the evil of the uniqueness of the relationship with God and the horror that sin is to God. He wants us with him and not with lesser goods, much less with evils. And so I think that has applications, certainly, and I, but I don't think it's primarily directed to the human relationship of divorce and marriage, because really uh, Christ clarifies that, and the church's, uh, the church's approach to that is, is the same, and that is even naturally marriage is, involves unity and openness to life for the entirety of life. Nature does not provide the grace and strength to accomplish that, but grace does. That's what the sacrament of marriage is for. 
And so even when the church says that it will tolerate a civil divorce, it's always in view of the fact that some condition existed which meant that the unity and the openness to life that should be willed in the contested marriage, as it were, was not present, and therefore it was not a valid marriage. And this is the distinction which the Catholic Church uses, which uh, most non-Catholic churches, uh, Christian churches, don't use, uh, accepting divorce in limited circumstances or in, in in other contexts. So the Church is very clear that, yes, God hates divorce, and therefore people are allowed to remarry, for example, not by virtue of divorce, but by virtue of never having been married. So people who get annulments, decrees of nullity, are marrying for the first time because something was lacking from the moment of the previous marriage that made them free to remarry. So I think it's a divine relationship, but it certainly has analogy uh, in the human relationship of marriage, which God uses to teach us about his relationship with us. God bless you, Stephanie. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Pat in the great state of Arkansas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Pat, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. I was wondering, actually, I heard somebody on EWTN a few weeks ago say that only Catholics are going to make it to heaven. I I don't even like that concept. <laughs> well, I hope you didn't hear it on e- you sure you weren't listening to some other Catholic station? I could have been. I could have been. But Maybe it was a caller she it, heard saying it. That could be. That could be, too. It could be. But that totally been a Catholic all my life. And the concept that there's not millions of people that are good people believe in just and fair things but may not have heard from about Christ or just good people that Christian but they don't practice Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> okay. this really blew my mind. Yeah. Well, uh, let me give you an explanation. I'll read you something. Uh, something written in an encyclical in 1863 by blessed Pius IX, who called the First Vatican Council. It is known to us and to to you, speaking, he's writing to bishops, that those who are in invincible ignorance of our most holy religion, but who observe carefully the natural law and the precepts graven by God upon the hearts of all men, and who, being disposed to obey God, lead an honest and upright life, may, aided by the light of divine grace, attain to eternal life, For God who sees clearly, searches and knows the heart, the disposition, the thoughts and intentions of each. In his supreme mercy and goodness by no means permits that anyone suffer eternal punishment who has not of his own free will fallen into sin. So that basically is the church's understanding of a doctrine which some uh, generally been called outside the church no salvation. There has two sides to that coin, and that is maybe what the person mistakenly uh, uh, understands from this teaching. And that is, if you are not a Catholic, then you can't get into heaven. 
what the church is saying there is a dogmatic statement. There is one way to heaven. That way is Jesus Christ and the church which he founded. But morally, as you described and as uh, uh, blessed Pope Pius IX described, we are not able to judge the consciences of all who may be following truth as they know it, adhering to the natural law as they understand it. They're responding to the light of grace as God gives it to them in their circumstances. And so, therefore, we can't close off to God, who is, after all, the Lord of all of this, whom he lets into heaven. As Christians, however, and as Catholics, we rightly assert, however, that if you don't know who God and the Savior is, are you not going to go fall into many atrocious errors in life that lead you down wrong paths that lead to your damnation? If you don't have in your church or outside of the church the sacramental means which Christ gave us specifically in order to strengthen us by his grace, in order also to draw us together into communion into one body, his mystical body, to be assigned to the world of unity in Christ. If you don't know that, then are you not lacking all these great things and good things which he not only died for to save us from our sins, but also to give to us as his treasury, if you will, his testament, the new covenant, the new testament. We even use that language. So the question is, God will judge the morality of individuals who are not Catholic Christians or are not even Christians. And he has a standard, and this standard is the one the Pope mentions. And that is, they're following the light, they're seeking the good. Maybe they've never heard of Christ, but in a very, in, in a very clear way, God knows that they, had the gospel been able to be presented to them, would be accepting of it and receive it. Now, that's about all we can say. We only know what Christ taught us. He taught us that the ordinary means of salvation is by baptism. Unless you are born again of water and the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of God, heaven. There he means, of course, you know that that's the case, and you say, eh, I'm not terribly concerned about it. Well, you're not being terribly concerned to the Lord of history who died on the cross for you. I think you might be concerned about that. So the conscience of the individual, as they are moved during their lives towards the truth and to the acceptance of the truth and to the adherence to the truth by, by trying to be, to be good and faithful and to following grace and so on, that's where how they will be judged. But the church must do its duty also and assert that the she herself, the church, is the instrument Christ willed for the salvation of the world. The rest of it is God's department. We have our department, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the church, the sacraments. What God does outside of that, basically the Pope is telling us that he will judge their consciences on how they responded to the light and the grace that they did have. and But we can't know that. We can say that a faithful Catholic would go to heaven, even if by way of purgatory. We cannot know if any other faithful type person will. We have no knowledge of that because Christ hasn't given it to us. But we do know that he is both just to the sinner and merciful to the repentant sinner. And that's what we rely on in all of those cases. Does that help, Pat? 
What about the Jewish culture? They are outside the church. They are following their consciences. Uh, there is, you know, obviously the hope because they have the love of the same God that we have. Uh, but again, we know what the gospel tells us, and we must uh, promote and do that and leave the rest to the Lord. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, one of our largest affiliate groups, Guadalupe Radio Network, is airing their fall share this week. If you're listening in the great states of Alabama, Florida, Texas, Kansas, New Mexico, or in the Washington, D.C. area, please support your Catholic radio station, and I would extend that invitation to anybody listening on a local AM-FM radio station. Help support those folks that bring you all this great programming here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is St. Louis, Missouri. John is listening on Covenant Radio. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for taking the call. Um, I had a question about the experience of purgatory, and in particular, um, when we pass away, does our sense of the passage of time stop, or if so, how is it influenced as we begin mm-hmm. to experience uh, it? Yeah. yeah, and that's a good question, because uh, traditionally theology, and in this, Thomas Aquinas, as he is on many things, is uh, is the, the safe guide. Um these questions based on philosophical conclusions about the natures of things and on theological uh, things uh, are not dogmas of the Church in any sense, but they're the most reasonable uh, understanding of these kinds of questions. And so we know what eternity is. It's God. And in a real sense, it's only God. Uh, Even the angels are not eternal. They're not in eternity. They weren't always. They are. Uh, and they will always be, but they they are not eternal. Uh, and likewise, holy souls, whether they're holy enough to, you know, take the fast elevator or whether they have to, you know, uh, stop at the scrubbing floor on the way up. And so he, they, Aquinas and others speak of ave eternity. And that is, it's not time because there, in time there is a, a substantial change of things. You know, you you eat food, it gets changed into you, and then it may get changed into other things, time going on. There's a, there's a change of things from one to another. We ourselves change over time as we age, we get sick, we recover our health, and so on. There is no substantial change in the angels or the holy souls, whether in heaven or purgatory. And so there is an accidental change. So there is a recognition of a quality that is neither time nor eternity, which allows us to pray for them. It allows allows them to pray for us, and uh, this is, of course, the 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 space, if you will, the time, if you will, that the angels also occupy. So that's the general solution to what is the theological problem of the difference between the eternity of God and the time of material creation. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
833-288-3986. Dennis is a first-time caller in Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dennis, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I do appreciate it. Sure. You know, I just if I could piggyback, that lady a couple questions ago uh, asked about if non-Catholic people or who didn't hear the message that I saved. And what I did, I went in my Bible, Romans um, 120, for, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attitudes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So I think the Bible answers that question that we might not know his, his name is Jesus, but we know there's a special power, and it's not like a Buddha or Confucius. So I think the Bible's pretty clear on and uh, yes, people who don't ne- never heard of Jesus, yes, they can be saved. So that's just a side note. But my question was, I mean, Jesus well, that, that's says, a side note that needs answering because I think you're wrong. Um, the the answering is this, and that is, this is speaking of the natural wonders of creation. This is what Catholic theolo- philosophers and theologians call the natural law. That reason is sufficient to distinguish those things in creation, and these, the ability to do that is the possibility of all human beings. That's what St. Paul is speaking of. That's what the fathers of the Church and uh, the theologians speak of. They even give it a name. It's called the semini verbi. It's the seeds, seed of the Word, or the seeds of the Word. So we can think to St. Paul, who says that, you know, he is the, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That the Father stamps the creation with the image of his Son. In other words, there is within creation the signs of that relationship with him, the attraction to the eternal and the desire for the infinite of human beings. These are all things which people, which precisely what the, the Pope that I cited was talking about that people are drawn to the truth because it comports with our reason to see that there is something bigger than us, that there must be somebody who created all of this. As Aristotle himself said, without the benefit of divine revelation, there has to be a first cause of all the other things that are caused. And so you're quite right. Romans is quite right. So all that does is tell us that there is this natural inclination and attraction in us to that which is true and that which is good, to that which we see in the created universe. Now, what happens, of course, is men misidentify God. They see him, they they know that the creation represents him, so they see them in the created things, and we also find those references in Scripture. But what the Church is saying, what Pius IX was saying, is that when all is said and done, if you have not been offered Christ— and I would, I would agree with you about your statement about an implicit need for God. That is implied in what I said about the Semini Verbi. We recognize an implicit need for God. We recognize our falling short of him. And in other words, at minimum, an implicit need for a Redeemer. In fact, Aquinas makes this very point when speaking about the patriarchs and those who came before Christ. They, they had some inklings of who Christ was, would be, who their Messiah would be, 
But we know from Christ's own time, they were totally wrong about that. They were looking for a, a, a physical Messiah, but, or a historical Messiah in terms of Romans and so, the Romans and so on. But really, it's a redemption from sin. And this, too, is innate in human nature because of the natural law. We can see how we fall short of that perfect good which our nature calls us to and have a recognition of sin. All of that is covered by the church's teaching in that God is ultimately the sole judge of individuals as to whether they know he exists, they know that they are imperfect and they need a redeemer under any any color, and they're striving for him, and they try to be faithful in striving for him such as they know him, that's a judgment only God can do. Nonetheless, the church also affirms that Christ is the—anybody who gets to heaven is getting there through Christ, because after all, he is the, the one who mediates between God and man, and they're also getting there through his mystical body, the church, even when they don't know and they don't believe that the church, the Catholic Church, is his mystical body. Nonetheless, it is the instrument he has chosen. So there is a lot in there that only the conscience of the individual, as judged by God and nobody else, can determine what moral fault there is for not arriving at Christ and not arriving at the church. That's a judgment we can't make. So I think you've oversimplified it completely. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Al is in Panama City Beach, Florida, listening on iHeartRadio. Al, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, Mr. Donovan. How are you, sir? I'm good. What's your question today? Well, here's going to probably be a weird question. I am a Baptist pastor friend of mine did the Stations of the Cross with me, and he noticed the Divine Mercy statue and then the uh, tapestry. Jesus has a forked or split beard. I don't know what you'd call it exactly. And he said, that's kind of creepy looking. Why did they do that? And I said, I don't know. And now I cannot stop seeing it. And <laughs> I, I was like, why would they do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's somebody... There are two images uh, of of it. Um, the one which uh, my family and I, when we say our chaplain, very often will go to, the, you know, thanks be to COVID, so many sanctuaries and Eucharistic adoration sites are online now. And so in Vilnius, in Lithuania, is the original chapel where the Lord appeared to St. Faustina. And that image is the closest to what he uh, looked like. And it was hidden for many years, hidden from the Nazis during the war, and then rediscovered and cleaned up and refreshed. And and now it's in that chapel uh, in Vilnius. And um, they have done some studies to show that the physiognomy, in other words, the structure and so on, uh, is identical to the Shroud of Turin, just as they have done with the so-called Veil of Veronica to show that there is a coincidence of of data points regarding facial structure and other things. Uh, Unfortunately, those are probably not data points that have have beards in them. In any case, it's sort of, you know, uh, if you look at the way people dressed in medieval England, for example, uh, you know, the, the men sort of wore like little dresses. Uh, we wouldn't do that today. Uh, custom is a changing thing. 
And so the beards of the first century or the beards of the 10th century or the beards of the 21st century, uh, those are a matter of taste. In fact, the ancient Romans had this solved long ago. They said, de gustibus non disputandum est. Of taste there is no debating. In other words, if I like pizza and you don't, that's not a debating point. It's just that I like pizza and you don't. If the if an ancient Jew or an ancient Roman dressed one way or shaved or didn't shave, the Romans shaved, uh, okay, whether I like it or not, it doesn't matter. That was their choice, their taste, and they did it th- that way. So, yeah, I, I, I'm i sorry you have this fixation on forked beards now, but I think maybe don't make so much of it. Yeah, and actually, I, just doing a real quick little perusal of the uh, Internet here, there is one image with a distinctly forked beard, but there are far more other images of the Divine Now, Mercy that could that, be that somebody's reconstruction of it. Is it either the, the Krakow version, which was made Ni- after no, she... No, ha- neither of those. Neither of the main ones, and Vil- Vilnius have, or Krakow, which are the two authenticated ones. This is a far, far more contemporary-looking one that actually yeah. had that feature, yeah. so... So don't buy it if you don't like it. And I I would never buy some clone anyway. I'd want to get either the Vilnius or the Krakow versions, which St. Faustina guided their their painting. Yeah, so maybe, Al, a good response would be that there are, you know, most of the considered to be authentic images of the Divine Mercy really don't have that feature. And that anytime you get humans involved... Any goes awry. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Al. We appreciate the call. Mary is a first-time caller in the great state of Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. Mary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you for taking my phone call. Sure. Uh, would you? How do you respond to someone who does not believe in immaculate conception? They say, "How can that possibly be true?" Uh, do they believe in Eve? Uh, that's, that's uh, yes. Okay. Yes, they do. Now, for this question, you don't need to be an evolutionist or a special creationist. But the point is, human beings, body and soul, came about at some point. And the scripture tells us that when spirit and body were first put together, it had the divine life within it. Eve, therefore, is called the mother of the mother of all men, the mother of the human race, mother of the living, the mother of the naturally living. So here we have Christ, the Son of God, more than immaculately conceived, but at minimum you could use the expression immaculately conceived because from the very beginning he had the human nature that Adam had. All the human elements, body and soul, intellect and will, emotions, Uh, imagination, memory, the things which the philosophers distinguish in us. In addition to that, he had the divine life within him. And as I said earlier in the show, the the life of the second person of the Holy Trinity. So uh, even more specific than a generalized divine life in you. So Christ had it. There's now we got Adam and Eve. Now we got Jesus. So the mother of God. Hmm. It's not much of a reach to say that she too was unique because the Lord promised in Genesis 3.15 that the woman would conceive and bear a son, etc. So that son is the Messiah. This is the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And she is the, the mother which the Vulgate translation says will, will, 
participates in that crushing. She, she too, crushes the head of the servant because she made her yes, gave her yes uh, to, to the angel. So from the very beginning of the church, the fathers began to identify her as the new Eve. If we have a new Adam, if we have a new humanity, we have a new Adam and we have a new Eve. The mother of the historical Christ is also the mother of the mystical Christ. This is the theological reason that Mary was immaculately conceived. The moral reason would be if you were the father and your son was becoming incarnate, would you place him in the womb of a sinful woman, a woman subject to the penalties of sin, subject to the kingdom of Satan, the prince of this world? I think the answer to that's a clear no. So all the arguments favor the Immaculate Conception, whether you agree, you know, a person agrees with the details of the church's explanation or not. The point is, as the Orthodox say, they don't profess the Immaculate Conception, you know, specifically, um, perhaps a little Roman for them, but they call her the All-Holy One, the Pan Hagios. She is the All-Holy, and she can't have been All-Holy if she was conceived and acquired uh, the penalty of original sin in herself and subsequently gave birth to the Son of God made flesh. You know, I always find it really curious when some of our non-Catholic uh, non Christian brothers and sisters will look at a distinctly Catholic doctrine mm -hmm. and will dismiss it out of hand while yet holding to things that in the natural are far more crazy than that. <laughs> Well, and there are Catholics who do the same, frankly. <laughs> Thanks know. so much, Mary. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Still plenty of time for your phone calls. Um, be sure to check out EWTN News Nightly uh, tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, they'll be giving you some extensive coverage of Pope Francis's trick trip, rather, to Kazakhstan. That's EWTN News Nightly tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio and Television. Uh, Red writes in, he says, I'm a Protestant. What is the difference between Catholics and Christians? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's define what a Christian is. <laughs> a Christian is one who is baptized in Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. We know that from, from the sacred scripture. Uh, he has chosen Christ as his Redeemer. He has uh, invited him into his soul, uh, to use the Protestant language, or in the Catholic language, have been, having been baptized, that grace is infused into his soul, which is a unique divine act and not something that we can effect. That's a Christian. Now, as Augustine said, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. Who is the mother, the mother church. It's the Catholic church. So a Catholic is a Christian. It has the mother as well. We're just talking about Mary as the mother. I think there's, an, there's a connection between the rejection of the church as Christ's church and of Mary's special, because there's a parallelism there. Mary is the mother of the church. You have to accept the church. You have to accept the mystical body as Christ, which and the spouse of the Holy Spirit, and, and spouse of the Holy Spirit also makes a nice little correlation there, right? Yeah, and many of the fathers speak of daughter of the Father, uh, mother of the Son, spouse of the Holy Spirit too. So, 
you you have to those things are connected, accepting church and Mary. And as Augustine put it, uh, you should have the church as your mother if you're going to have God as your father. Uh, and that is because Mary is the mother of Christ and the church is the mystical body. So God, Christ, the mystical body, Mary, it's a package is what. And of course, Jesus tells us, unless you eat my body and blood and drink my blood, you shall not. So now he's he's allied not only his mystical body, but his sacramental body with that with his church. So those are those are among the reasons why Catholic Christians are distinctive in that respect. Uh, but all others who have been baptized and seeking to pleasing the Lord, as we discussed in the earlier question, uh, God will, uh, you know, God will judge them accordingly. Uh, the, the main, the main thing in all of those questions is, do I, knowing the truth, reject it? And I would attest that most non-Catholic Christians and otherwise have not made that judgment. Some have, some have made that decision. Well, I know. Christ is the Savior, phooey. I know the church is his church, phooey. Uh, th- that's, that's the thing that God judges, that rejection, because it's a rejection of his authority. I, he, I've revealed this, and you reject it. That's where the nub comes. That's where the judgment will fall. Uh, Francis writes in, Does sickness come from God as a punishment? Does it come from the devil? Sickness is, well, in a way, you could say it comes from the devil because he led the angels astray, the other angels, and those are his companions in the fall, and because he led our first parents uh, away. So evil, natural, material evils like sickness certainly at their root come from the devil, the brokenness of creation in our own uh, human brokenness, our moral brokenness of original sin and the consequences of personal sin. So the devil has a role. But in and of itself, sickness can avail to greater sanctity. And most of the saints have had to dealt, many of them, with severe sicknesses, and they've grown closer to God through it. Uh, I think the role of sickness in the life of the Christian is like the role of other hardships. Uh, you know, it's the crucible in which they are tested, in which they don't despair, but they draw closer to God. So in that sense, it's tolerated by God. It's material evil that's in the world. We can't get rid of it. The COVIDs, the flu, the cancer, we don't get rid of it. Science uh, uh, is working to get rid of it, and that's what we use our reason for. That's a good purpose. Uh, But in and of itself, we can't get rid of it, and therefore uh, we have to learn to accept it as something tolerated by God that we can use either to despair and to say to him, you know, I hate you because you've made me sick, you've made my family sick, or whatever the reason is, or to love him all the more and endure it, uh, not just for your own sake and your own salvation, but this is the particular Christian thing, that we can endure it for the sake of others, for the salvation of others. And I know, Jack, as you have, that here at EWTN, the countless numbers of stories and personal experiences of exemplary Catholics and even other other Christians uh, who deal with their sus, uh, uh, their suffering in what can truly be called a graceful, a grace-filled way, and that's how suffering can be dealt with. Because the other ways of dealing with it are not grace-filled. 
good. And very quickly, I'll give you a, an answer if it doesn't ha- a question that doesn't have a quick answer, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Okay. Uh, James says, "Why do Catholics? Because it relates to something you've said a couple times during the show today. Mm-hmm. Why do Catholics believe that baptism and faith are both important for salvation? Jesus clearly said salvation only required belief, not baptism." Well, he didn't clearly say that. Martin Luther said that in he, adding the word faith alone in Romans. Uh, St. James tells us that faith and good works, referring to charity, which produces good works, in other words, the living of the faith, because even the devils believe, as Scripture also says. So the role of baptism is the gratuity of it. I mentioned that a few moments ago. I think it's wonderful that people who are where they are in their life you know, come out, come forward, and they do the sinner's prayer, and they profess their love for Christ, and they claim their redemption. But the church does not believe that that is the way God, Christ, intended the grace to be given. It's gratuitous grace, and there is no greater gratuity than humbling, coming to our mother, the church, and saying, I wish to affirm the faith I wish to be received into the mystical body of Christ and to use the means that do that. And the means is baptism. That's clearly said. We get the story of Philip and, uh, and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. I mean, this is so clear. As soon as he had heard all the explanation from Philip, what is to keep me from being baptized? Am I not ready for that which is the door to salvation? And so he was baptized. And so I think those are clear examples of the, the uh, important and necessary role of baptism for the beginning of the Christian life. What's the first thing Peter said after the appearance of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when they asked— Repent and be baptized That's right. for the forgiveness of sins. What sins? Original sin and personal sins. Very good. On behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again next week. On Monday, we'll have Father John Tregilio. On Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes is in the house talking faith, family, and fellowship. We will have uh, Dominican Father Brian Milady back. On Thursday, and Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, will join us again next Friday. Have a great weekend until we get together next week. God bless.